and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and this is episode 85. Artificial intelligence is all the rage these days. Everybody's talking about it from large language models to whether AI is going to take our jobs or change the way we engage in educational pursuits. But one area where it's not talked about so much, at least in the mainstream context, is accessibility. What is AI going to mean for people who need accessible access to technology? And what is it going to mean for people who are trying to provide it or are being forced to provide it in some way? Well, I wanted to talk about a lot of these topics with somebody who has very strong opinions, but more importantly, a lot of knowledge about accessibility in general and AI specifically. Uh, my guest is Adrian Rosselli. Uh, he has worked with companies of all sizes, from independents, from Fortune 5s, to help stand up accessibility teams and processes. Since 1993, he's ensured software and web-based applications can be utilized by people of varying levels of ability and are on an array of platforms. Adrian Rosselli, welcome to Parallel. Hi, thank, thanks for having me here, Shelley. Thanks for being here. I uh, I became a, a, acquainted with you reading your blog and your your many very strong opinions about uh, <laughs> accessibility in general and, and AI. Uh, do you want to tell folks a, a little bit about yourself and how you sort of come to uh, work in the accessibility world? Oh my. Um, yeah, so so this could go on for the entire run of the episode, so I will uh, do my best to be incredibly brief. Generally, back in the um, uh, at the almost at the turn of the last century, uh, prior to the millennium flip, I had started a software development company with two partners, and one of the things I had identified uh, was a a gap, a market gap for accessibility work. Um, especially when it came to uh, government contracts and the like, where we did a bunch of our our work. So I identified that there there was an opportunity for us to set ourselves apart from the competition, and I started to teach myself what I needed to know about digital and web accessibility. Again, back in in, in the late 1990s, and I discovered um, once you fall into this, once once you uh. Well, you really can't unsee everything that's wrong once you start in it, in on it. So it's been about 25 years of me learning how to do everything in the wrongest way possible to get me where I am now. And uh, just picked up uh, knowledge, skills, experiences, connections, failures, et cetera, along the way. That sounds pretty uh, wide ranging. Um, and, and yeah, I think accessibility does sort of... Uh, rope you in and you, you you can't unsee it. I absolutely agree with that. I've, for both both sides, both the user experience side and the, oh, wow, how could we explain how to people, uh, how, how to right. fix this to people who don't yeah. have any idea what we're talking about? Well, specifically, I want to talk with you about AI. And I, I think, like I said at the top, a lot of people think of AI in terms of how it's going to, whether it's positive or negative, how it's going to affect things as basic as how we write things, how maybe how we do code, whether how we do our jobs, all that stuff. Uh, but I, I guess I'm wondering, sort of from a big picture point of view, what is the connection between artificial and intelligence, artificial intelligence and accessibility? I know we're going to get to some more specifics later, but just to give people a general idea, how does this sort of AI revolution that we're going through, how is it affecting accessibility and how do you think? That's, that, that is also, I could answer that a few different ways, so I'm going to take a stab at it this way. I think right now, a lot of organizations and developers see 
what they are calling as what they are calling AI as something to handle sort of the heavy lift for them or to maybe speckle over the gaps. And they're doing so maybe without the full knowledge or understanding of what those tools look like and almost definitely without the experience of working with disabled folks as their audience, as their users in studies or anything else. So I think there's that sort of ideal, maybe this can solve our problems, silver bullet type model versus the practical and real application for when it gets to to humans. And that's primarily in terms of web development, building sites, right? You're you're not necessarily talking about, well, maybe maybe you could, but 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 I think that's the that's the area that even before people knew what an uh, LLM was, uh, you know, nine months ago, uh, AI and accessibility in terms of how people were trying to put spackle, as you say, over over websites to make them accessible. You know, AI was a thing back before everybody else even heard of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so I guess in that context, you're talking about about web development. Yeah, I, uh, and I should have qualified that. I, I am. I should have scoped it to web stuff, uh, web pages, web applications, um, at some level, probably apps as well. And, and that's intentionally excluding places where we know some of these ai like tools have had good impacts for you know some very specific reasons and outcomes well let's go ahead and and talk about the web development side there are other ways that ai is becoming relevant in terms of how devices and how software is accessible but there's there's a lot going on in the web world can mm-hmm. and the and this big uh th- this term that folks in accessibility know and folks outside of the accessibility world might not know accessibility overlays this is soft this is ai based software that is supposed to make a site that is in, on some level inaccessible accessible can you explain how an accessibility overlay is supposed to work and then we can sort of dig into some of the problems yeah, at, at a high level, an accessibility overlay, an idealized version of it means that no matter how broken your site is, this tool will run on the website after the page has been served to the user. So you as the site owner or developer don't need to do any extra effort. Uh, you put in one line of script and this overlay will fire up and it will remediate the page in real time and allow some further adaptations based on user preferences or user selections. Which I think some people who hadn't heard of this before might be saying, wow, that's amazing that it can do that. And other people like me are sort of horrified. Uh, <laughs> why doesn't yeah. it work the way as advertised? Well, there's there's a, generally a stack of reasons. Um, one key reason is that none of these use AI anyway. So any of their prior claims that they use AI don't ever seem to stand up to the sniff test. They typically seem to use algorithms and linters and things like that. But more importantly, the end user has to have a machine that can download that script, which means it wouldn't be blocked by an ad blocker or third-party tools or firewalls, which is a thing that happens. Then if the script is downloaded, the script has to run, which means it's using CPU cycles and memory on the end user's computer. And we already know that in the disability community, it's pretty common to have older and or underpowered devices. So it's gonna slow that experience down every more, even more rather. It's going to run on the page each time you load the page. So instead of the developers fixing it once, 
it's getting fixed for every visitor for every page load, which means it's a huge distributed effort. Uh, the, the advantage here, of course, is they can continue to update it and push new stuff out. The disadvantage, though, of course, they could just do that on the, the, the host platform regardless, as opposed to offloading it to the end user and repeating the same remediation over and over. But fundamentally, what we've found, what the community broadly has found, is that they don't perform as they are advertised. Um, screen reader users tend to be annoyed that the overlay is haranguing them with live regions, making their screen reader tell them how to turn it on. Uh, keyboard users struggle to navigate around the overlay widgets and um, get past them on the page, or in some cases, even trigger them if they do want them. Some of the things that they assign, like uh, certain dyslexic fonts, for example, which generally broadly don't do anything, although they do help individual users in individual cases, don't don't actually seem to fix anything. They just sort of change the 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 paint on the on the walls. They don't remediate stuff that is necessarily a WCAG violation. And then above all of this, some of them will claim that um, your site is protected from. Uh, lawsuits, or it automatically meets WCAG, which, uh, so the lawsuits is a US specific thing generally. And WCAG conformance is international because if a country has accessibility laws on the books, they almost certainly reference WCAG either directly or by reference. That's redundant of me. But yeah, so I'll I'll stop there because there's a lot of words. Oh, sure. And, and the promise of not being sued generally would mean that if you ran an accessibility checker or something like that, it would pass the test whether, in fact, it makes the page accessible to the user. Is that generally true? Yeah, yeah generally true, uh, because a lot of the WCAG, especially the drive-by lawsuits, are, are folks who are just running a checker and looking for violations and then filing based on that. And the unfortunate slash ironic thing about that is some of these overlays introduce WCAG violations, which means that putting the overlay on your site can actually make you susceptible to some sort of drive-by lawsuit. And I think UsableNet even has a um, an annual report. They put out their mid-year report to show that the number of sites with overlays that are getting sued has climbed yet again, as it has every year. And I guess technically nothing prevents anybody from getting sued. It's just a matter of whether they're going to be able to successfully exactly. claim, you know, and, and 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 good intentions are not going to win you that lawsuit, right? Because if it's not, right. go, whether it, I, I don't know what the standard of proof is in lawsuits in terms of, okay, you've passed the accessibility test, but if the, the plaintiff can prove that in fact the site is literally not accessible in a specific way, I would assume that they would still mm -hmm. have a lot of trouble, you know, making it through that suit. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair way to frame it. And to your point, anybody can file a lawsuit for anything, no matter how frivolous. Um, the scenario that we're seeing here, though, is it seems like, and I've heard this, so I don't have evidence for this specific claim, but I've heard people talking about how, hey, it looks like these drive-by uh, complainants in particular have identified sites with overlays as easier targets because they are broken in a consistent way. Again, <laughs> I, I don't have clear evidence for that, but yeah. if you wanted to just do a form letter lawsuit, yeah, everything that's got overlay A, yeah, these are the things that always fail. So we'll just send that letter to every site that's got it. 
And just in terms of the market for these things or the companies that are out there plying this trade, they're pretty much, is it just like three companies that are that are kind of, that are doing all of these or there is it proliferating or more companies getting into it? Because some of them have gotten venture funding. They're pretty, pretty, yeah. uh, you know, um, a lot of confidence in the markets in the, these things. There are a ton of companies out there. I want to say there are at least a dozen, probably more. Some of them will white label it. Some of them will resell it. So that number is a bit squishy. A few of them absolutely have venture funding, have a few rounds of venture funding, and they've used that primarily for marketing as opposed to making dramatic changes to the product, or at least that's the impression of end users who see, oh, hey, they got another $30 million in funding, and yet it still doesn't work well for me. Uh, But there are probably three, four big players in the market that are most widely known. And those are the ones which, because they're the biggest, are, are going to get written up the most or have the most um, articles or coverage about them across, uh, say, mainstream press. And you've actually written about and uh, had some confrontations with some of those uh, those companies. Do you want to share a little bit about what, what's happened to you in your sort of fight to explain this issue uh, out in public? Sure. So I have... I have for the last few years written posts about the most well-known overlays. Um, uh, I think that, um, let's see, uh, UserWay, well, Accessibility First, then UserWay, then um, Facility, which is a French one, and um, AudioWay. Um, UserWay, the the, um, chief... What was his title? Not the CEO, but I think a a CTO tracked me down at a conference to challenge all of my assertions, but um, couldn't necessarily provide evidence for that. And I cover that in my post. And then AudioEye has gone and sued me for the post I wrote about them. So they are currently suing me. Um, That is an active case. And as I'm sure you can understand, I'm going to be very careful about what kind of feedback I give on that other than, you know, very specific uh, things that are pointed out in the documents that have been filed with the court. Of course. So what what they are suing for you, suing you for is essentially denigrating their product because you're saying that specifically, you're, you're, you're calling out specifically their product and then the, the idea in general of overlays and, and saying what you've said here already, that they don't do what they say they're going to do and that in fact they cause accessibility problems. Broadly, yes, they they um, take issue with some of my claims. Uh, there are some claims that they don't fight at all. Um, they they've even gone so far as to suggest I doctored videos. Uh, all of that stuff is on my site. I encourage your readers to take a look at the uh, the revised complaint that they're using and the response that my attorney has put together, along with a few affidavits and affirmations. Absolutely put a link to your site and to some of those specific posts up so people can take a look. But I thought it was important for people to know that that you're you're not just sort of expressing this in the abstract. You, you've actually uh, – th- these companies generally are fairly uh, litigious and have been somewhat aggressive in terms of uh, how they've addressed people in the user community too who have mm-hmm. been critical, either just critical in general or based on their own experiences and they've deployed – folks to, uh, you know, marketing folks to sort of make them look better, but they've also been, they've been fairly aggressive in the stories that I've heard from people I've talked to. 
Yeah, I know that AudioEye has sued at least one other person, and I know that Facility has sued two people in France. Um, these are just the ones I know about. I don't know, as far as I know, for uh, I'm, I'm I don't know how many people AudioEye has gone after. Um, I, I've I've publicized mine. I know the two people for Facility have publicized theirs. What I don't know is if there are more people who haven't spoken up, who've gotten cease and desist letters and just decided right. to quietly fold because there is a huge risk here. Even a frivolous lawsuit costs money to fight. Do you know how many, not necessarily in, in numbers, but do you have a sense of how common accessibility overlays are in the wild and, and websites that people would have would have heard of? Or you know, how likely is it somebody is to encounter one of these things? Well, I I know that some bigger sites have them. I think the FTC has one, for example. The Olympics site has another one. So there's a reasonable chance you're going to encounter them in the wild. However, I have also found that there are plenty of people who didn't even know an overlay was on a site because their ad blockers block it. <laughs> Which is another challenge because if you're an accessibility user, uh, getting your ad blocker or your firewall dealt with in order to get to that site might or might not present its own accessibility challenge, right? So you, <laughs> yeah. you've got to get you've got to get that thing solved, and then you've got to get to the site, and hopefully the overlay hasn't made it inaccessible for you in some way. And is is it something that an end user would be fairly aware of once they got to that point? Would they just not be able to read? certain elements of the site? Are there certain kinds of content that are particularly susceptible to bad behavior by accessibility overlays? Well, it's it's always going to depend on, on the content. Um, you know, overlays, for example, I don't know of an overlay maker that says it will do captions or transcripts or that it will remediate your PDFs, even though many of them, you know, guarantee some level of WCAG conformance. Um, but they tend to struggle with stopping and starting animation, sometimes with uh, resizing text, even on the even on the sites that own them. Um, they can struggle with with uh, understanding uh, focus order, especially when they're responsive styles. But it's it's highly variable. It's highly variable because every site is different. Uh, developers constantly come up with new and exciting ways to code things that are just weird. Um, and so it's a constant moving target anyway. Right. And and just to be clear, if if you were speaking to somebody who has a website that they need to remediate either because they've been threatened or just that they want to do the right thing and they want to actually make their site accessible, what you would tell them to do is hire humans that are skilled in this area, consultants of some kind, rather than relying on, on an overlayer. Would you have any other advice for somebody who's trying to figure out how to make their site accessible who may not know what they're doing? So there, there are a couple of approaches. I just punched my microphone. That's weird. There, there are a couple of approaches, and they partly depend on where you are. If you are just building something brand new, then work it into your contracts with your vendors. Uh, get WCAG conformance built into it. Make sure that you have some clawback clauses. Make sure that there are guarantees as part of that. And if you're doing it solo, take a look and ask the vendors, the, the, the platforms, whatever, what kind of guarantees they have anyway. So if you go to WordPress, for example, look for an accessibility ready theme to start with. So there, those are some steps you can take that aren't any additional cost. If you've already got a site and it's already built, and now you know that there are accessibility issues with it, there are WCAG violations, 
Well, the first thing you should do is start to run some tests. You can run some automated tests. You can do that immediately to get a sense of what's wrong, what's broken. Put together an accessibility statement. And in that accessibility statement on your site, say, hey, we know about these issues. We are going to fix them and put a timeline together for when you think you will fix them. There's no cost to doing that first step other than, you know, uh, man hours to to press the button to do an automated check, which won't catch everything, maybe about a third of it, but to do that first pass of an automated check and put it together and then turn around and start talking to your vendors and see how they can help you and make sure you frame it as if you're affected by this, so all of, all of their other clients and help you out here. But those first couple steps that I've outlined in, in each scenario don't have any additional cost. You don't need to worry about upfront monies there, especially since in many cases, you can defend yourself reasonably, also I am not a lawyer, by saying we know about these issues, we have a timeline to fix them, we're just understaffed and underpowered, so it's gonna take a while. And those automated checkers are by and large free and they're easy to understand. Like once you run them, you're going to have a pretty good sense of where a lot of your problems lie. And in fact, you'll see, you know, 65 errors or whatever, and many of them are the same thing, you know, mm -hmm. multiple times across your site. So I would I always yep. tell people, don't be scared. Run the checker. You're going to learn some stuff that you need to know. Absolutely. They'll, they'll give you quick hits on things like contrast and missing alt text for images and some document structure stuff and keyboard things. Like the things that tend to be the biggest barriers, those are going to catch. Once you have much more rich, weird, interactive content, you need some more nuance, in which case you need to go back to whomever built that stuff for you and have a conversation with them. I would think a big issue, too, would be for a commerce site where uh, not only would, would – obviously, you're, you're needing to appeal – public accommodation and all that, and you're appealing to the widest array of customers, but you also have the most – you have a complex uh, set of things that you have to code, like forms and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, various fulfillment and stuff. Is there anything specific people who have commerce sites should, should be thinking about? I have been building commerce sites, so I started building them in, what year was that, 96, 97. They are really not that complex. We add complexity to them when we do the development. They're basically forms, series of forms. Mm -hmm. Gather some billing information, some shipping information, credit card information if appropriate, and then uh, a screen to review it. All of that stuff can be done in standard HTML with all of the elements that are there today. You don't need some big heavy duty library to do that work. I understand that it feels like those libraries can help you out and do a lot of that stuff for you. But frankly, your biggest risk is picking up one of those libraries without understanding what it does and understanding the guarantees and understanding what some of those risks are. So that's why you know, there's a whole, if you're a developer, there's a whole separate thing you need to do where you, you need to have some familiarity. You need to be comfortable looking at issues and understanding how stuff is uh, flagged and their issue trackers for accessibility and continue to hold people accountable for it. That's that's good advice that I, you don't hear a lot, that the, the more complexity, the, well, again, I guess it's the same uh, advice with regarding overlays. You have this big thing that is designed to help you accomplish something, but sometimes it's very bigness, whether it's an overlay or a library. It's complexity, I should say, is the thing that's going to get you in trouble more than if you just go and code the HTML in a way that's compliant with WCAG. Yeah, like. generally that's true. If you just yeah. do... Um, 
pretty standard static HTML to start with, you can at least confirm that things work. So yes, when, once you fold in that complexity, well, complexity. Right. I want to uh, bridge this conversation to what we what I talked about at the top, which is artificial intelligence. And, and you said something that I think makes sense, but the accessibility overlay vendors have marketed their stuff as AI because basically it's it's automated. It goes and it looks at the site and it it makes determination with its you know with the code and it says you know this is how we're going to remediate it for accessibility. And, and you say that's not really artificial intelligence. What is it? Uh, generally, what they're doing are, are algorithms, scripts, linting. They're looking at instances of certain chunks of HTML and maybe how they're coded and looking at existing patterns and adjusting them. They may be looking at code that they regularly see from libraries or platforms. And they know, yeah, Shopify always messes this control up. So we're just going to make it look like this control instead. So they're, they're basically just... Um, giant search and replace tools. So AI is just marketing from that perspective because it's automation and that may be something that's understandable to folks that AI sounds like it's using intelligence to look at what's actually on the site and making it accessible, but not necessarily the, the case. In the broadest strokes, yes. Now, you know, I know one over, so Accessibility has talked about uh, it uses AI to do image generation and it may have had its own it may have been using one of the older computer vision models from a few years ago. I still don't think that's AI, but those at least come a little bit closer because they have to do some <laughs> computation beyond just find and replace. Right. So there are a couple of ways that AI intersects accessibility. You just mentioned one of them, computer vision. And mm -hmm. I think uh, some folks who know about uh, iPhone features, where which are image recognition and image identification and that sort of thing, may have some sense of what computer computer vision is and how it impacts accessibility. But can you just sort of talk about that? What what's computer vision and how does it connect to accessibility? Very broadly, computer vision um, evaluates an image that you put in front of it, whether it's a live image through a camera or just a, a picture you upload, and does its best to tell you what's in it. And it does that based on its own sort of corpus of existing content, uh, images that it already has that have been described, along with um, some amount of OCR to translate that text into normal text as well. And does that does the application of that either in, as I mentioned, the iPhone or some other device or elsewhere, is that an analog good for accessibility or are there issues that people should be thinking about in terms of how it's applied or how good it is? Uh, so that, so those scenarios are, are a little bit different than web context. Um, sure. Because if you are, so you're using your phone to identify what's in your refrigerator and what the expiration date is. That's incredibly valuable if you can't see it. And that's a, that's a boon for users. That's absolutely a boon. Um, but at the same time, you have to be cautious if you're using it to look at a picture that somebody sent you because it might not be describing things exactly the way you want. I, I had an example of a, um, a picture that I posted, which was a Rice Krispie treat with a hole drilled in it to put in a birthday candle. And the computer vision couldn't really identify that. But more importantly, it read the placemat that this plate was sitting on. And the placemat was for a, a um, hotel in Hong Kong that had the name of um, 
uh, what was it, the Melbourne Hotel in Hong Kong. But the computer vision tool that the person was using to inspect this image uh, had it reported that this picture was taken in Melbourne, Australia. Hmm. So not a not a big deal. You, you know, the alt text I had with that image described it and gave enough context. They just wanted to explore it a little bit more, but they also got a false impression of it. But also followed up to ask me, hey, why is this in Australia as opposed to your living room? And I'm like, yeah, no, 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 it just misread that. And I think that many of the users who are using it in that context completely understand because they have the opportunity to have a a conversation with somebody around them or the person who provided the image, et cetera. And I guess one of the most obvious examples is a, is a meme or something that you see online oh, yeah. that where context is super important. So you, it's not enough to say it's a picture of a guy laughing. It probably is, if it's a meme, it might be from a film. There might be some saying that goes with it that it's, it's reading, but you don't have the context. Oh, that's, that's a Star Wars character or that's, yep. you know, from that thing that everybody knows about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Great example. Are I mean, is, so is, is in terms of the way computer vision is being used, are there are there things that people should be watching out for, either in terms of the way, way it's implemented or on the user side, the way to the extent to which we we count on it? I mean, do you have do you have concerns like that? My biggest concern about computer vision being used in the context of websites, we'll just stick with websites um, versus web apps and PDFs and so on, is that the image was chosen by a human, typically, not always, but typically the image was chosen by a human and they chose that image for a reason. The reason might have been the CMS template requires them to have an image and they have a library of nonsense, so they just pick one at random. The reason might have been somebody's engaging in a visual pun. Maybe the reason is the image reinforces some content in the article that they're reading, or it's a screenshot of how to do a thing with the software you've just purchased. All of those has, have very specific intents behind them or lack of intent. Computer vision isn't going to know that. It can do a good job of telling you what is in the image and you can ask it again and again to refine it or to look at it again but it will never have the context of the author. It will never know what the author was hoping to convey by choosing that specific image. And and that could be applicable if you're creating auto-generated alt text, for example. So if you're on, yes. a, on a website and you have an image, say, let, let the computer do it. Let the computer tell me what that's a picture of. I always make the differentiation between, you know, what the function of a caption and alt text is anyway. And so a lot of times people substitute captions which may or may not be literal explanations of what's in the picture. Probably aren't, but if they are, they don't necessarily get at what you would want in an alt text, which is you know a contextual explanation of the photo. Yeah, um, or, and the, or the gra or the illustration for that matter, like any graphic, like a logo or just a picture that somebody's drawn or something like that. And depending on the tool you use, um, you'll get dramatically different proposed alternative text. Uh, Microsoft mm -hmm. Office will regularly tell me everything is a picture of a phone, even <laughs> though it could be a cupcake. So, you know, it's really hard to, to understand how you would use that by default. But some people will because it's just easier to say, auto alt all these images and then go away. Well, and, it, and it's pretty amazing, like especially again outside of the web world where you have something like uh, Seeing AI or, or Be My Eyes, where you've got these mm -hmm. apps 
that can do, even they miss context, but they can do pretty amazing things. And there's a, temp- yeah. I would imagine there's a temptation to say, well, that's going to solve my problem of having to write alt text for every image or, you know, somehow account for a description for every image, uh, you know, that I'm putting out there. Yeah, it's it's compelling because they are powerful. It's compelling because there are plenty of users who swear by how useful those tools are to them. And for the context in which they are using them, they they can be lifesavers. They, they can be the difference between independence and not. Totally. But when it's in the context of a web page, it's not the same. And it, it doesn't mean that it's better or worse. It's just different context. So to switch gears a little bit, the uh, large language model is the way people, most people became acquainted with AI in their own lives, ChatGPT uh, and and BARD and the other tools that are out there for for public use. Uh, And so I wonder generally, and and, and among the things you can do besides, you know, writing a paragraph or presumably a novel or whatever is people have applied it to writing code. I don't know the extent to which they've had it writing, you know, web code and that sort of thing. But I guess I I wonder uh, what what do LLMs uh, have to say in terms of accessibility are there are there areas like that are are they in fact using being used for for websites or to provide other sorts of accessibility assistance or what what should we know about llms and accessibility well i i uh, i'm sure uh, some of the folks listening have heard uh, llms described as stochastic parrots i refer to them as um spicy autocomplete because <laughs> really all they are doing is taking inputs and trying to respond to questions that, or, or prompts rather, by using statistical models to identify what is the next word in this thing. And they're all trained on stuff that they have scraped from the web. And you know, legality of that is a whole different conversation that I do hope people sort out soon. Um, but I have already seen, there was a whole, there was a whole run of time when um, ChatGPT was first released. When I watched accessibility practitioners regularly either write posts or answer questions by saying, here's what ChatGPT says, and it wasn't clear if they were being ironic or if they were just playing around. And it got to the point that my default response is just um, me typing me points and laughs because it doesn't (laughs) doesn't actually solve the problem. So to take that a little bit further, we'll talk – I'm going to tie this a little bit back to the, um, the overlay scenario. There's an overlay vendor out there, UserWay, that has talked about using AI. Then UserWay rolls out its um, Fix My Code site where it says, hey, this is a um, an LLM that we have trained ourselves, and you can use this to ask it code questions, and it will spit out accessible answers. So the first thing here is UserWay is saying at some level – this is our first foray into AI as opposed to what we've been claiming for the last N years. So, okay, I get that. You weren't really doing AI. We knew that. And now here's our AI model, which is just a a trained uh, licensed LLM. So I started to play with it. And immediately it gave me answers, code answers that would violate WCAG right out of the gate. So I'm sitting there looking at this thing and I'm trying to understand, is this trained on code that this overlay vendor has provided, in which case, terrible code, 
or is this what they're using to do their work? In which case, terrible WCAG violations. So that's that's sort of a, a supremely focused example because when you back out of it, when you get move away from user way and you just look at getting answers to code at all, first of all, uh, LLMs will make stuff up. They'll lie. Uh, their, their promoters will refer to it as hallucination because that makes it sound more human and, and less awful. Um, but second of all, they're trained on... A, a, a terrible information. Most of the web authoring advice on the web is bad for accessibility and they're trained on that information. So these LLMs are just regurgitating other bad information. But so my sort of, uh, you know, naive, innocent question would be, but wait, WCAG is a thing. Couldn't you put WCAG, couldn't you put the WCAG standards into an LLM and feed it to them, and then it, it would then spit something back that would be compliant because it's just trying to be compliant with a, an existing set of rules, right? Shouldn't that work? Um, I, I that's a great question, and and what? So if the the only reason I'm sort of stuttering and pausing here is because I want to frame this without it sounding mean. WCAG is not written for computers. Hell, it's not even written for humans, but it's written about humans. And it's written for humans to try to parse, which is a whole different animal. So since WCAG, only about a third of it can really be tested automatically, you're already potentially sending a standard to an LLM to parse without clear, discrete guidance on how some things can be handled, especially with newer technologies. So because WCAG requires so much um, judgment based on human interaction, how humans are going to encounter these interfaces, an LLM doesn't have a lot to work with. It has a lot of language it can yank out, but I expect that the outcome would be confounding and after this interview, I absolutely want to go to ChatGPT and ask it to describe certain success criterion for me because <laughs> I expect it will be hilarious slash alarming. I bet you're right. And, and that's that's a, a very good point. WCAG is about humans. I, I like that a lot because, you know, it's not like an API or something you could just or a library or something that you could just feed in there and say, OK, do what it says. Because there is both subjectivity and just you know individual content. You're trying to you're trying to adhere to a standard. You're not trying to, you know, write. You're not writing a program necessarily that will or won't work. Mm -hmm. So, um, I guess as far as LLMs though, do we do do you think they have? Do they offer anything for people who are accessibility users, either in terms of the way they can? create content or understand concepts? I mean, is there anything good about them from an accessibility perspective? Obviously, sure. with the caveat that we don't rely on them to, you know, be our brains for us. Right. Right. Well, they'd be terrible brains um, yes. because they'd, they'd, they'd mostly just ask for tea and <laughs> um, grunt a lot. So um, I think that LLMs can be useful for users to help them do things like create an abstract of a page or to take a first draft at writing something. So if somebody's got a, a cognitive impairment, if um, somebody just can't parse some information, if they struggle with writing something in a particular tone, yeah, an LLM can absolutely be a handy tool 
to do some of that first pass work for you. You know, that first draft, the first blush, it should never be used as the final thing, especially since we know LLMs lie. It's almost their hobby. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't some value in it as long as you understand how to use it. As far as I'm concerned, it's not much different than a hammer at that point. Hammers are great for driving nails, but if all you have is a hammer, every problem is going to look like a nail. And that's exactly the scenario we're in with LLMs right now. Uh, let's see. Is there anything else? Is there anything we haven't talked about in terms of AI and accessibility that seems to fit in here? I mean, I don't, I know it, that's a really open-ended question. Uh, it is. I just think, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, the thing is, to me, AI, all of these technologies that people are talking about aren't AI. They're, they're fake AI. They're advertised as, LI, as AI. But some there are some technologies that have existed for a while that do a good job on their own. OCR is a great technology that has mm -hmm. opened up print documents to people who might have never been able to, to read them before. Um, automated captioning, often terrible, but dramatically better than it was years ago has made it possible for people to create videos that at least have some semblance of useful information in the captions. Uh, computer vision helping out with identifying stuff, but we talked about computer vision already. Of uh, 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 Speech recognition, um, to me, not AI again, but creating voice interfaces that weren't possible years ago, even though you know voice interfaces have been around for decades. I think these are all tools that are valuable, have their limitations, and generally people who use them understand those limitations. I think the risk that we're seeing here is that as soon as we brand them AI, we give them some sort of mythic capabilities, or at least assume they have these mythic capabilities, and in doing so, trust them when we should not be trusting them. We should be simply looking at them as a tool that should be replaced as soon as it outlives its usefulness. I think that's a good way uh, to, to end our conversation. Thank you so much, Adrian Rosselli, for all your insights about what is and is not AI. Uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, if, if you would, to tell folks where they can uh, find your work online, keep track of what you're doing. Sure. Uh, the easiest way is at adrianroselli.com. Uh, A-D-R-I-A-N-R-O-S-E-L-L-I.com. That's my blogotron. Uh, that's where I share all of my uh, nonsense and ask people to correct me regularly. I'm also active on Mastodon, um, Adrian at Toot Cafe, but that's linked off of my um, that's linked off my site. So I'm not going to bore you with spelling them, that out. And while you can find me in other places, frankly, I'm I'm a little overwhelmed, so I'm kind of restricting <laughs> it now. Are you uh, one of those many who are off Twitter or looking Twitter at Twitter with side eye and having to be there a little bit? Or Math Mastodon is your home for social media now? Mastodon is my primary. I'm still on Twitter to promote my stuff and to pick the occasional fight. Got it. Same here. I get that. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you, Shelley. 
Keep up with all things Parallel over at relay.fm slash parallel. You can also do a bunch of other fun things there. You can subscribe to the show. You can become a member of Relay FM, and specifically, you can support Parallel. But the membership doesn't just benefit me. It benefits you in the sense that you get access to the Discord server and to members-only Relay specials throughout the year. You can also follow us on social media at Mastodon and even on Twitter and get announcements of every new Parallel episode before everybody else does. And last but not least, you can buy yourself an Accessibility Sprinkles t-shirt, which shows your love for Parallel out in the wild. The sprinkles is in bright colors and the word accessibility is in a cool accessible font. Really proud of that shirt. You can get it different colors, different configurations, and uh, they're nice and comfortable. I wore mine last weekend, showed it off in public, and um, I highly recommend it. Be back in two weeks with another episode of Parallel. Bye now.